I'll start this morning with a memory. So I am the middle of three sisters. We're all close in age. About 20 years ago, my oldest sister got married. At the time, she was just 20 years old and was attending college as was her husband in Boston. I was 18 at the time and my younger sister was 16. We're stair steps, the three of us. At some point in the first few months after my sister's wedding, my younger sister and I made our way up to visit our now married sister in her tiny apartment to spend a few days together. This would mark the very first time that we, as 20, 18, and 16-year-olds, would spend time alone together without our parents. It was the summer before I started college, and I remember feeling like something was blossoming inside of me. I was chomping at the bit for freedom. In the end, it was a relatively tame trip. We watched movies and did a little bit of exploring in the city. The one outing that truly stands out in my memory was a visit to the New England Aquarium that boasts an exhibit that they call the Giant Ocean Tank. Has anyone else ever been to this tank? Awesome. So a visit to the exhibit starts at the very bottom of a four-story, 200,000-gallon cylindrical tank, and you proceed up a ramp that winds around the exhibit, and you observe the animals living at each level of the water. Now, almost as soon as we started our trek, we spotted Myrtle. Myrtle is a giant sea turtle that has lived at the New England Aquarium since 1970, and today she's around 90 years old. That means that when I encountered her on my visit, she was about 70. Now, my sisters and I saw her immediately, and we were giddy. Like, she was huge, like about 500 pounds, according to my research this past week. And as we proceeded up the ramp, in a coincidence that seemed somewhat miraculous to us at the time, Myrtle swam just about alongside us, keeping pace as we ascended slowly. Now, I don't remember how long it took for us to make our way around the corkscrew ramp to the top of those four stories, but the entire experience for us became about Myrtle, about the fact that she seemed to be strolling with us, about the fact that we'd started our journey at just the right moment to spend time with her. When we finally got to the top of the tank, we were able to look down into the open water. And moments after we stopped to look down into the depths, Myrtle's head popped out from under the surface. And she let out this satisfied gasp. She filled her old lungs up with the next gulp of oxygen. We saw her above the water for maybe a single second, but it still felt like magic. I actually just got chills telling that story 20 years ago. Um, also, I encourage you to Google Myrtle breathing because I got to watch a video of her doing the exact thing. Apparently, we're not alone in our fascination with her. So, as I'm making note of, in the many years that have followed, I've thought about that moment a lot. Most of the time, the memory is about the wonder of the experience, the glee my sisters and I felt out in the world on our own, making a memory that was just ours. But I also think about Myrtle in harder moments at times where I feel myself desperately needing to come up for some air, where the demands of my life have me spent during periods where I feel like the swim to the surface is taking too long, like the chance to breathe in deep and slow is too far off. And so, as we've noted already again, this past season has been one of the most intense of that kind probably in the history of my life. Just as I first met all of you, I was preparing to enter seminary part-time. 
As you also know, my wife and I are the blessed parents of two beautiful, wild, demanding, small children. One is three and a half, and the other is 14 months. My job, which takes the form of a corporate nine to five, has required travel about nine separate times since late June. And as of last month, ceased being a work-at-home job, and now I'm back in a downtown office. Parenting, partnering, school, travel, work, not to mention starting my oldest in preschool during COVID, has been exhausting and overwhelming. There has been little time to rest. There has been little time to pay attention to myself. There has been very little time to pause and ask myself, am I okay? Do I need to take a breath? At times like this, when, I'm, when checking in with myself starts to feel like a luxury, or when I don't feel like I'm doing the best job of paying attention, I still find often that while I'm not taking the time to go deep consciously, I often start to get the sense that something is brewing. While I blaze through my life from appointment, on one appointment to the next, whether I like it or not, there are still always things happening for me subconsciously that will start to tug and pull and ask me to pay attention. Now something else to know about me is that I like to have all the information. I do not like to be surprised. And wouldn't you know it, I'm happier when I feel like I'm in control. Another thing I'm guessing a lot of you can relate to. When I think about my identity as a Unitarian Universalist, my alignment with our fourth principle, a free and responsible search for truth and meaning, stands out strongly. It aligns with my want and need to have all the information, right? In the book, The Seven Principles in Word and Meaning, the Reverend Paige Getty reminds us that as responsible religious seekers, we recognize that we are privileged to be free to have resources to pursue life beyond mere survival, to continually search for truth and meaning, to exist beyond the bounds of dogma and oppression, and to wrestle freely with truth and meaning as they evolve. Now this principle was a key verse in the siren song that originally drew me to our faith tradition. I grew up within a religion that instructed me to believe what the church taught with nothing short of a because we say so mentality. And I rebelled from the start. So maybe it's because of that upbringing, who knows. But even though the spirit of our principle in no way calls me to do so, things sometimes go a little south for me as I find myself wrestling ardently during the process of meaning making. If I don't watch it, it becomes entirely too important to me that I figure things out with a sense of absolutism. This incessant need that I struggle with, this need to figure things out, has more than once landed me in a state of desperation with myself. If I'm struggling, feeling anxious or depressed or stuck under a cloud of some kind, and the reason for my state isn't clear to me, I will become frustrated or worse, incredibly judgmental of my own mental state. If I can't name what's wrong, then how can I fix it? And if I can't fix it right now, then does that mean I just have to continue to suffer? I can become fraught. I feel shame, I feel confusion, I feel like a failure, I feel like I don't have time for this. Ooh. Several years ago, in a period that felt intensely rife with stress and one of those frantic periods where I knew that something was wrong, I sat in the office of one of my mentors and lamented at my state. 
I'd been panicky, anxious. I'd been feeling hopeless for weeks. However, nothing had happened to me that would cause these feelings. I felt like something needed fixing, but I didn't know what. And that lack of knowing was starting to riddle me with shame. My beloved mentor listened to me and affirmed and validated my frustrations. And then she offered up to me another option that never naturally would have occurred to me. She asked me if I really needed to know what was happening under the surface. What if whatever problem my subconscious was trying to solve was actually none of my business at this moment? What if I chose to trust that whatever was shifting, changing, or asking to be healed would reveal itself when the time was right? I remember having no immediate answer to these questions because it had literally never occurred to me. She was saying that even if I didn't consciously know what was happening in my spirit, I was still doing the work. She was asking me to get comfortable with mystery, with not knowing. The concept for me was revolutionary. In his beautifully written book, Underland, Robert McFarlane tells the story of a pilgrimage underground. During his years-long expedition, he visits ancient burial sites in the UK, a subterranean superconductor in Europe, multiple mines, the catacombs of Paris, narrow, treacherous caves, and massive underground whirlpools. The book explores man's effects and influence on the underground environment while also offering a mind-bending change in perspective to the reader around the vastness of this planet and the intricate networks beneath our feet that we rarely are cognizant of. The entire book is a wonder. I read it at some point during the first winter of the pandemic when I was starved for new scenery. And I remember being awestruck chapter after chapter as these startling, ancient, very real, but never before acknowledged by me worlds came to life. I was humbled to be so vividly reminded of what is constantly happening literally beneath the surface that there's no way for me to be aware of. Even in the ground under my very feet, there were massive fungal organisms that were communicating and thriving. Buried in hills I have walked upon, there are undoubtedly ancient streams. Underneath cities that I have explored have been vast networks of structures and even communities that I have never dreamed of. Even in my lack of knowing what was happening deep below the ground, everything was undoubtedly still there. Organisms and ecosystems were doing their job. My knowing or not knowing about them had absolutely zero effect on whether or not those systems kept humming right along. In one glorious section towards the end of the book, McFarlane and a group of traveling companions are in Greenland, atop a glacier, when they are overcome by what they see. I'm gonna read you a small passage from that section. We stay in that sunshine on that marvelous summit for an hour and an era. We don't talk much. Up there, language seems impossible, impertinent, sliding stupidly off this landscape. Its size makes metaphor and simile seem preposterous. It's like nowhere I have ever been. It shucks story, 
I'm going to say that again. I love that. It shucks story. Leaves the usual forms of meaning-making derelict. Glint of ice cap, breach of whales, silt swirls and outflows, sapphire veins of a crevasse field. A powerful dissonance overtakes my mind, whereby everything seems both distant and proximate at the same time. It feels as if I could lean from that summit and press a finger into the crevasses, dip a drop of water from the Ciroc pool, nudge a berg along the skyline with my fingertip. I realize how configured my sense of distance has become from living so much on the internet where everything is within reach and nothing is within touch. The immensity and the vibrancy of the ice are beyond anything I have encountered before. I recall the Inuit word I first heard in northern Canada, alira, meaning a sense of fear and awe, and also carrying an implication of the landscape's sentience with it. Yes, that is what I feel here, Ilara. It may seem like somewhat of a leap here, back to me again, but back in my mentor's office, when she listened to me despair over my feelings of being stuck in suffering and not knowing the cause, when she presented to me the simple option that maybe what was going on beneath the surface of my thoughts was none of my business, I felt perhaps on a much smaller scale a similar dizzying shift in perspective. Somehow in all my years of working on myself and searching for truth and working to become more self-actualized, I had never considered that it wasn't possible for me to figure everything out. It hadn't occurred to me that some mysteries remain unsolved, even if temporarily, and that might not only be acceptable, but needed. So we are currently, now, deep in the season of Advent. The Christian liturgical season of waiting and preparing for the mystery of Christ's birth on Christmas Day. Since that moment of grace where I started to explore and try to let go of the notion that I had to figure myself out as quickly as possible all the time, I have often tried a different tactic when I realize that I'm entering into one of these seasons where something is brewing. I try, as hard as it is, to get comfortable with liminal space and the notion of being in between the not knowing, and the knowing. I try, when it makes sense for me, to relinquish some control. And as we do in the Advent season, I wait. I work to pay attention to my feelings, my thoughts, my fears, my struggle, to all of it. But I also try to let myself off the hook and recognize that I'm clearly trying to figure something out. I'm clearly trying to heal from some buried wound or learn some lesson that will help me step into the next moments of my life. I try to trust that even if I can't articulate what's going on for me, that deep within me are the resources to figure things out. I try to trust that my subconscious and my loving spirit will know when the time is right for the puzzle pieces to click into place. Often, and for as long as I can remember, I get these moments out in the world where I'll find myself in awe over and over again at the vastness of human experiences all around me. More often than not, this happens when I'm in the car. I'll be at a stoplight and I'll look in the car next to me and I'll see the face of a stranger and I'll almost inevitably enter this monologue where I'm reminded that this person that I know nothing about and will likely most never, will never see again also has this vast and intricate life 
and this depth of experience just like I do. Now, I know this seems simple to call out, but it can be overwhelming if you try to pay attention to it. As a kid, it was like when I tried to think about eternity and I would spin out because that's just too much, like too deep. It's the same when I look at all of you and I think, oh my goodness, each of us has this vastness in our subconscious, this vastness in our experience, the intricacies of our lives. Every single person, every single one of us in this room, every single person you encounter, we each contain multitudes. All of us are consciously or subconsciously in the process of learning, untangling, healing, growing. All of us are in the middle of our own self-discovery. How complicated it all is. How awe-inspiring. We've all heard the adage, be kind, for everyone you meet is fighting a hard battle. The quote, often attributed to Plato, but more likely originated by an author and minister of the Free Church, Ian McLaren, it can't be argued with. Yes, we should always be kind, but also, I'd hope that we're doing something other than, or maybe simply something more than fighting a battle. We're in the midst of our own searches for truth and meaning. We are in the midst of our own mysteries. We are all either in moments or in between moments of that Ilara that McFarland described, that sense of awe and fear upon a new shift in perspective or a new discovery. I have no words to describe this knowing other than it feels like being given the most wondrous gift. I look at each and every one of you and I stand in awe of all that you are undoubtedly learning and unlearning, of all that your subconscious is working to reveal. My hope is that in hearing this, you'll walk away with a few things. One, if you haven't yet, I hope you may find the ability to let yourself off the hook when you can't seem to figure yourself out. I hope that just as I'm sure you often do with those around you, you'll assume your own mind's best intentions. I hope that in the moments of suffering that enter your life, you'll have compassion for yourself if that suffering confuses you. I hope you'll find some faith in the fact that even if it's an unknown part of yourself, that you have the ability to work through this next thing and the next. I also hope you'll take with you at least some small sense of wonder during the season where days are short and so much of the natural world seems to be lying in wait, that we too have our seasons of growth and change and rest, that all are necessary, and that each of us, every one of us, while inextricably connected, contain a vastness just as this earth does that is awe-inspiring. May we honor that in each other. I pray that even in seasons of struggle and uncertainty, that we all may continue to listen to those small voices rising up from underneath the surface that whisper to us to pay attention, but that we won't put undue pressure on ourselves, that we'll find patience and love for ourselves and for those around us when they too find themselves in struggle. We are all infinite, I believe. We can never truly know our own depths, and that to me, is a miracle. I'll end with this poem, if I may, by Marge Piercy, which harkens a different season, reminds me of your mustard grains, of spring and renewal, and reminds us of the patience and care that is needed in order to witness what will indeed soon grow. It's entitled The Seven of Pentacles. Under a sky, the color of pea soup, she is looking at her work, 
growing away there, actively, thickly, like grapevines or pole beans, as things grow in the real world, slowly enough. If you tend them properly, if you mulch, if you water, if you provide birds that eat insects a home and winter food, if the sun shines and you pick off caterpillars, if the praying mantis comes and the ladybugs and the bees, then the plants flourish, but at their own internal clock. Connections are made slowly. Sometimes they grow underground. You cannot always tell by looking what is happening. More than half the tree is spread out in the soil under your feet. Penetrate quietly as the earthworm that blows no trumpet. Fight persistently as the creeper that brings down the tree. Spread like the squash plant that overruns the garden. Gnaw in the dark and use the sun to make sugar. Weave real connections. Create real nodes. Build real houses. Live a life you can endure. Make love that is loving. Keep tangling and interweaving and taking more in, a thicket and bramble wilderness to the outside, but to us interconnected with rabbit runs and burrows and lairs. Live as if you liked yourself and it may happen. Reach out, keep reaching out, keep bringing in. This is how we are going to live for a long time, not always. For every gardener knows that after the digging, after the planting, after the long season of tending and growth, the harvest comes. May it be so.